human emotion is a thing that can bring us together or tear us apart. Pain, anxiety, sadness, and the events that create them isolate and weaken us. But when we speak about these things together and truthfully, we find we relate to our humanity through our difficulties, and we realize we are not alone. In that, we find strength and the ability to not only change ourselves, but others, individuals, and even large groups. The psychology of resolving racism comes from that bridge of understanding. It comes from empathy. And in this way, we resolve racism, discrimination, and begin to stitch together what has been torn apart. Our ability to connect with and work better with each other. My name is Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman. I'm a clinical and consulting psychologist. I'm an executive coach and a professional speaker. Join me and my guests in the unvarnished and honest conversations about what make us different people. These conversations will change our thinking, our feelings, and ultimately the way we behave and engage with each other. These conversations are the missing piece to resolving diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. This is the Different People Podcast. Welcome back to the Different People Podcast. Today, we are in episode nine of 10 episodes of season three. So almost finished season three. And today, who I have the pleasure to talk with is Sana Mahboub. Senior Communication Advisor, Western Economic Diversification Canada, and Executive Board Member for the Association for Fundraising Professionals. With all that's happening in the world, in our country, in our continent, when it comes to issues tied to racism, the concept of communication is critical. And so it is a pleasure to have Sana with me today. So, Sana, I've been asking people that I talk with, how they identify. Now, this isn't typically a question most of us want to be talking about first thing, but I think in talking about our identity, our culture, and racism, for the purpose of learning, this is a good question. So can I ask you how you identify? Absolutely. I identify as a Muslim female. Uh, Pakistani is born and partially raised over there, and I identify as Canadian as well. Wonderful. Very, very immigrant. <laughs> right. So tell me a little bit about how that identity has impacted you uh, personally or professionally here. I thought we were going to start with easy questions, but okay, here we go. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> so I think first and foremost, um, that identity has certainly molded me into the person that I am today. We moved over here to Canada and I, I was nine, my brother was 10. For the longest time, my mother would refuse to speak English with us because she wanted to make sure that we would not speak our, uh, we would not, excuse me, forget, forget our languages. And, you know, she brought the Quran as well. So she would make sure we could still read Urdu and Arabic. And just, there was just this importance that my mom had, uh, both my parents, but my mom particularly had with making sure that we did not forget our culture, our religion. So that's how it 
started, and you don't necessarily have to worry about that when you're in a, in a homogenized country where everybody around you is, majority around you is Pakistani and Muslim. So anyways, we moved over here. And then as I got older and I saw the world evolving around me and perhaps maybe the most impactful was after 9-11, I saw how Muslims were being treated, how immigrants were being treated. I instantly knew that every action that I take, every step I take, it's going to be, you know, if I, if I do something negative or if I lose my cool in something, it's going to be like, oh, look, that, that angry Muslim or uh, that immigrant, just that's not how we do it in Canada or whatever. So um, that identity has shaped me in very, very positive ways. It also reminds me that I do need to be cautious and careful with everything I do because I am not only representing myself and my family, I'm also I feel like I'm representing a culture I'm representing my country with every step that I take. Mm. That's a heavy burden to bear. Perhaps. Yeah. Maybe you just become accustomed to it because the alternative would be to not have that, you know, just, just throw caution to the wind. And then suddenly you're a very bad representative of where you come from of, or of your family or of, of your race or your religion. Why do you think that's so important, Sana? Why do I think it's important to be representative? Yeah. Why is it important to make sure that we are good representatives of our communities? Oh, goodness. The stereotypes are out of control. And I don't, I mean, you know this. As a Muslim person, there's so many stereotypes around being, I don't know, like, oh, a poor suppressed Muslim woman. They're making you wear a hijab. I don't wear a hijab, but God knows I've heard the stories or the amount of quote unquote jokes that I've grown up around. If I've said, it's like, oh, don't bomb us. Right. And these are sometimes Mm -hmm. like your quote unquote, maybe not friends because my friends would know better, but you know, people around you who think they're being funny by making terrorist jokes. So yeah, I think it's just to make sure to not feed into the stereotypes is why I think it's so important to make sure we're good representatives. You know, it's fascinating. You're telling me about your mother and how she wanted to make sure you had your language, your beliefs very well protected. It it sounds protective. And it's interesting. It sounds to me like you're also being protective. Like I, I feel like people of color and cultural Canadians, Canadians who come from cultural communities. I think you're right about this representation. We spoke with Michelle Byrne, who identifies as a Black woman in Canada, and she talks about how they always needed to be mindful about how they came across. So it's a common experience a lot of people have. But to me, it sounds like it's protective. But we only need that sense of protection when we feel like we're in danger. Yeah, this would definitely be a common experience, I imagine, for lots of people are very aware of their surroundings and the world around them. You know, you don't realize it. It is just, it starts becoming a part of your identity. You just start being very cautious and careful. Mm-hmm. If uh, the moment you drop your title, you might become the angry brown, you know, Muslim guy. I still am. <laughs> yes, yes, that is, that is true enough. And maybe rightfully so, right? So mm-hmm. for sure there's danger, but maybe not in a sense of like, you know, to your immediate life, but absolutely to the perception around you. I just feel like if I'm not a proper representative, it's Mm -hmm. going to get some idiot 
an excuse to treat the next brown person a certain way. And they don't have to be Muslim. They don't have to be Pakistani. They just, you know, same face, same race. Like they could just be any brown person and they're going to just paint us all with the same brush. So it's not just being a representative for just Pakistani, Muslims, Canadian, immigrant. It's it's perhaps being a representative for everybody who's uh, who may remotely look like me. Right. If they're right here in Winnipeg. You know, Sana, I actually do think it impacts our life. I think I think the way we've looked at racism in the past is that we're looking at like hangings and burning crosses and residential schools. To me, I think racism has become much more sophisticated. It, it's actually the best kept secret, I think, in North America and the Western world. And the only people who really know about it are the people who live it, who experience it. And that's those are the people who know how much it impacts their lives. But I, I agree with you in the sense that we get used to it and we don't recognize how much it impacts our lives. But even the decisions we make of what stories we choose to share, how much we choose to speak up, you know, whether we choose to take a day off, all of those things impact work, our livelihood. And that is actually one of those basic needs. You know, basic human needs is that sense of safety, a sense of livelihood. So for us to thrive, we need that. And it becomes really hard to, to move ahead and to actually accept who we are. And so with all the protection, I think our parents, and my parents were the same too, very protective about language, culture, and faith. But it's, it's almost like with, despite all their efforts, despite all their efforts, a lot of that gets undone. You know, we, we go out into the world and I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I know many immigrant children or children of immigrants will often feel their parents are heavy handed, you know, (laughs) you relate to that? Oh, goodness of course it's funny because it's true you don't understand why because yeah. all you want to do is go you know for a sleepover at like you know yeah. a, a girlfriend's house all you want to do is like go out and come back you know after sunset or but I, I don't know why this is funny because I yeah so when we moved over here you know it was, it was my parents my brother it's a very small tiny family and then we were supposed to move back to Pakistan like three years into Canada, get our citizenship and just move back to Pakistan. And we didn't uh, because, you know, my mom was like, my kids are just, I don't know, actually, I think she was more like, well, maybe you guys should finish high school over here and then we'll go back over there. But my dad had to go back and suddenly it became the burden of, you know, being a good parent who teaches kids faith and culture and cooking and you know, work, all that, everything that that comes with parenthood, it certainly, suddenly the burden fell on my mom. And all while it was, I'm sure, very, very difficult for my dad to be back home as well. And my mom was, oh goodness. Other, my mom was so heavy handed that these days, you know, when you see this joke online where it's like, how strict were your parents? Well, if I had fun yesterday, I can't have fun today. Right. Mm-hmm. For the longest time, my mom made my brother and I, sleep in the same room as her because she was so overprotective and cautious and careful. And she, you know, had never had to live in a house or in a foreign country without my dad. She's just always so careful. And oh God, don't even, I couldn't leave my doorstep. So all my friends had to come to my doorstep because, you know, that's what you did back whenever I 
my brother wasn't allowed to bring guy friends over because there's a sister, you know, a daughter in the house. These all seem so just outrageous. This, those are tiny little things, but I couldn't go out. I certainly couldn't go out past a certain hour. And now looking back, and maybe it was probably honestly undergrad where I was finally <laughs> able to <laughs> do stuff. Maybe, maybe, maybe more once I was done, done university. And in the moment I was like, this is the worst. I can't believe I don't have the freedom that, you know, my Western friends have and unbelievable. But like looking back now, I'm like, oh yeah, you know what? Probably for the best. So in the moment, you don't realize it. And I wish there was some ridiculous story that I could share. There's just so many tiny little stories that make me laugh at how heavy handed my mom was, but my dad, not so much, you know, it with my dad, I could. I could do no wrong in my dad's eyes. I still can't do no wrong in his eyes. (laughs) Uh, So with the mix of having a very, very protective older brother and an even, you know, more protective mom, uh, it was, it was quite an interesting childhood. I regret absolutely 0% of it. As a matter of fact, I often thank my mom for it now. Yeah. and, And that's interesting as a father, not facing the same challenges that my parents did. I still wonder if in order to protect the identity in terms of culture, language, and faith, ethnicity for my son, whether I need to be overcompensating because I know, and we know the moment children go to school, the impact on socialization is not the the primary impact on socialization is not the parent. It's everybody else, the rest of society. And when the rest of society doesn't always encourage or celebrate the culture and language, you know, and, and I, and I do believe we live in a white supremacist world and a white supremacist society where things that are celebrated are not the multicultural things that we would hope or think that we do, then that wears away at that identity. And so you wonder how much do you need to overcompensate in order to make sure that some of it sticks. To me, it's not about forcing beliefs into somebody or to your children, but teaching them to be proud of who they are and where they came from. And that's the piece that I think that gets stripped away. Absolutely. Uh, Looking back, I think about all of the things I was what was it? A few days ago, I was listening to Sri Raj's podcast, like mm-hmm. when he had Raj as a guest. And I chuckled when he was mentioning, you know, uh, one of his classmates wearing a full on suit in, in class. Cause I, looking back, I was like, I would never do that either. Unbelievable. Right. Like, like but, a, a Punjabi or Sharvar Kameez. Like a Sharvar Kameez. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, I was like, ooh, I don't know if I would ever do that. Like, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't, right? But that, right. that doesn't mean I'm not proud of my culture or religion. I think my mom, no. yeah, had to work extra hard. And I don't know how you are going to do it with, you know, mm-hmm. your son is seven going on eight. And how do you embed mm-hmm. that? Well, it's, it's, an, it's an evolving picture, you know, but I mean, I, I, think, I think there's other ways to do it too. I mean, the way I'm trying to do it is to kind of influence culture. trying to shift Canadian culture so that I'm not just working on him, but I mean, I'm just a single person, but trying to help move society and culture in a way that would allow them to be the village he needs to be raised and to be proud of who he is. 
you know, that, you know, if he were to go out and somebody said to him, hey, you're Muslim, shouldn't you not be drinking? You know, that, you know, somebody else would remind him. People will make their own choices and it's not about that. But what I would hate is that the reason for him to give up those beliefs would not be out of his own decision so much as the need to fit in, mm. you know, and that would be, that would, and, and many people, I mean, you and I know a lot of people in our communities that will talk a lot about wanting to fit in. And as Muslims, you know, much of our culture doesn't always seem to fit a Western quote unquote lifestyle. And, doesn't, yeah. and to fit in, we have to give up who we are. And it's not that we want to, it's that it, it, it hurts too much to be excluded. You're right. Just going back to what you had said about not fitting in. And, and yeah, there's a number of friends and family who don't feel comfortable taking the day off on Eve and it's coming up on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, they're in environments where they are just not comfortable saying mm-hmm. to their you know management or leadership that I have to take this day off because it's a religious holiday. You know, fortunately, I'm not in that position. I'm most certainly taking Tuesday off for Eve, but it it really guts me. Like I, I don't even realize how much it it impacts me or how it actually like my heart hurts for them when they're not able to. Will you be missing family on, you know, a very important holiday and observance? Yeah, yeah, I, I think. If an organization is not working to be more inclusive like that, they become the Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, forcing people to work on their holiday, you know. So, Sana, can we talk a little bit about stereotypes? Yes. So you and I, would people would perceive both of us to be brown. And people would uh, assume correctly that we're both Muslim if we talk about it publicly. What do you think impacts people assuming we're the same, like a monolith of something? Because, I mean, you and I come from different countries. We have different cultural and ethnic heritages. And that impacts actually our practice as well, too, faith and things like that. That even as Muslims, we are, we're not always going to be convergent on, on how we interpret or practice certain things. What do you think contributes to how, why people push us all together into the same box? Lack of awareness, I would say, right? Mm. They would just paint us all again. We go back to painting everyone with the same brush. Oh, Abdul Rahman's Muslim, Sana's Muslim. They're the same people. The same uh, people. We're, <laughs> we're from, you know, different continents and different, you know, cultural experiences. So this is what happens when you don't celebrate everything, when you don't bring in cultures into a workplace or into a community that you begin to paint everybody who looks the same with the same brush. Right. Why it's so important to A, be an ambassador, not only just within your network, but if you're able to be an ambassador within your workplace, be an ambassador within your neighborhood. So people can start becoming more aware. We don't, none of us know what we don't know, but if I can, if we can do our part a little bit and perhaps workplaces can do their part a little bit and celebrate everything. Yes. It would make a huge difference. Yeah. And my, my hope with that program was, I think people miss it. Well, you know, I want to talk to you about getting it, the concept of getting it, because I'm not sure that people always get it. But my worry is that a lot of people, when they think about celebrating everything, it becomes a bit of a, a festival of cultures and, and it becomes anthropological. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, oh, let's, let's try your food. 
And that can be a little bit difficult. I mean, to me, that concept is not about an anthropological review of different cultural communities. It's about integrating those cultural practices, the way those people would practice those things here into a part of Canadian culture. And that's not about bringing dishes in from home. It's the opposite of that. It's about making sure that the space is created, that that holiday, any way that it's celebrated, can come forward. And what that does for me is when leaders step up to acknowledge and create space to celebrate everything, it allows people to feel comfortable to not just take the day off, but to articulate and to express how it is that they would choose to celebrate those days and express themselves culturally and ethnically. Like if we think about Christmas, there's so many different ways people celebrate Christmas, you know, and there's room for that because that has been given space. Should you and I want to celebrate Eid, we don't have that same breadth of experience. We don't have that room to celebrate it the way that we would do it. It's, it's, we've all got to fall, fall into line in this really stereotypical view of how they expect Muslims to be. But, but more so than that, it's not just a celebration. We have to fall into line of how they expect us as people of color and people from cultural communities to live. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's no room. And those stereotypes become really damaging because I think it impacts Like you either have to be that stereotype or not that stereotype. There's no spectrum. You know, you talked about in Pakistan how everybody or most people were Muslim and spoke a similar language. But even there, because so many people are from that, there's a spectrum, right? There's dialects, there's practices, some people practicing more, some people practicing less, some people wearing the hijab, some people not wearing the hijab. There is that spectrum. And I find here... When we don't create that space, we lose that spectrum. And we either have to act in the way they expect us to be immigrants, because we tie that culture to be, you know, an immigrant culture, or we give up that and we're quote unquote Western. Right. For perhaps some of the listeners who may not have caught up on what Celebrate Everything is, right, that's exactly what it's meant to be. We're asked to bring our whole selves wherever we go. And guess what? That's a way of doing it. And perhaps after or at some point, Heather in mind, you can maybe touch on like, if I was a workplace, if I, if I was a boss at my workplace, what exactly would I, I just like, you know, hand it to me on a silver platter, what exactly would I need to do to incorporate, celebrate everything into my workplace for my team? The answer to that is basically that that you need to integrate those holidays. And, and there's not as many as most people think. There's about six or seven uh, here in Canada that would, that would umbrella all the different cultural and ethnic communities here in Canada. It's not just to offer people the day off with pay, you know, in the same way you would, but to actually start to adopt those celebrations and those days themselves and to move to the point where we're all taking those days off that out of respect for those communities that we are all acknowledging that what that does, it's not just about the food that people get to bring to the office and have a potluck. And I want to talk about that in a bit, but, but it creates space for people to be who they are because when people are marginalized, they don't have the strength to stand up and ask for what it is that they want, because they know that there's a lot of racism. The space isn't created. I mean, that just goes with family not being able to take days off. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. absolutely. When it comes to, you know, just the month of Ramadan, and I have to say this last Eid, the amount of Eid Mubarak's I got from my workplace were just, it just, my, I was overwhelmed mm-hmm. in love with every Eid Mubarak that popped up, like at the, you know, at the corner with my team's message or in my inbox. Like that's, you know, it just, I wasn't expecting it, right? I, it, but it came and it was, it was absolutely lovely. And perhaps I've been, you know, at, at, at previous jobs, I've been so beat up with lack of culture. I don't even know if that's like, I don't even know how to express fully without getting angry about it, right? There was just no, it was just Christmas and that's at the end or, you know, maybe Thanksgiving, I guess, and Easter and that's it. That's it. Nothing more, nothing else it's uh suck it up the end and you know even at the previous job I was a little uncomfortable with okay Eve is coming up and for so many years I would go to it because you know at the convention center we'd have Eve prayers I would go to the convention center and then I would rush to work and I'm mm. so irritated at just even saying that out loud like why did I not put my foot down why did I think that this meeting was so or you know whatever the rest of the day meetings were they're so important which clearly they were not why did I feel the need to leave my family my parents who you know love celebrating with us why did I feel the need to leave my community leave my celebration and like change one time in the car to get back to work right like mm-hmm. what is that I like I'm just it's infuriating that I was in that position at one point. And then many years later, many years later, I was there for a while and it was the month of Ramadan and fasting. And it only came up maybe because one of our, you know, colleagues who sat near me, like just this impeccable baker. She's just lovely, like great bakers. A lot of them were, and I, I couldn't, you know, I have a bit of a sweet tooth as you may know, and I, I couldn't eat it. And suddenly there was a talk about Ramadan and, Somebody just, you know, it's, it's very your tight group of people who sit around you. They were like, well, why don't we just try it out for a day? We'll, we'll fast with you or, yeah. or, you know, I'll fast with you. And then it kind of started a bit of a chain event. And it was about six or seven of them who the next day fasted with me. Oh, that's nice. I, oh, I still, till this day, my heart is just full of so much love and appreciation for each and every single one of them. And I remember I was so excited about it and so appreciative of it. And I felt seen. I remember mm-hmm. like the day before I sent them all an email saying, okay, guys, like drink lots of water today. <laughs> You're fast tomorrow. You know, do not eat salty meals in the morning. You'll be thirsty. Yeah. And I'm giving a breakdown of everything. So they fasted with me and <laughs> bless their hearts. You know, they were, they were like, I need my morning coffee and I can't believe you deal with this, but it was an experience for them. And, God, it was an experience for me. And I appreciate that. That's a beautiful and touching story. Imagine what would happen if we did that citywide or countrywide. I'm not saying, and I'm not saying fasting, but I mean, if we acknowledge that, right. And we did that, you know, if the CBC or global news had little kind of things that came up where we're acknowledging different Canadians to me, that's, that's the communication piece, right? That's, Communication is not always just what happens between two people in my head. It's, as you know, you're a communications expert. It's the messages that we relay, you know, yeah. within organizations, leadership, within communities. And, you know, actions are louder than words. 
when we open doors and create spaces for people to be who they really are, it allows them to be who they are with a broader spectrum. They don't have to fall into stereotypes. Stereotypes, I'm afraid, and how even when people are well-meaning, keep us in place. And my reference point for that is how baklava can be racist. And not baklava itself, but the perception of baklava. So I recently posted a photograph of me carrying home some local Manitoba butter, claiming it was my post-workout meal. That butter was actually for the baklava that I was going to be making for Eid that's coming up in a few days from this recording. Now, because I'm quote-unquote brown, because I have an Arab name, because some of my lineage people would know this is Arab, people automatically assume that because baklava is foreign, and I am thereby foreign, that I'm making a cultural dish belonging to my community. And it's not my cultural dish. My cultural dish that what we would normally make on Eid is cake, (laughs) because I come from a colonized country and it's become a part of the culture. That I can make really well. I'm not making that. Or maybe kalimati, as some Arab people would know would be lukmat al-kadi. And I don't know how to make that fancy dish. My mother does. But I like baklava because it's amazing. And it's not, but it's not. But how do we get people out of thinking that I am one and the same from that community? And it's only with the expression of that space, the expression of who we are, being able to have that space, that those conversations can happen and people can understand that I'm making baklava because I'm a bakery snob, not necessarily because I'm brown. Right. Right. How do we get people out of that? Oh, Mm. so I know that you're making baklava because you're a bakery snob, right? I know that. I know you're getting local butter because you're a bakery snob. I know that because we're friends, right? Because we have an open line of communication. So this may go back to me saying that, and I'm not saying that it's on you or I to teach people everything, but it really, really, really just goes back to the more we keep each other's cultures in mind, the more we learn, right? None of this is, none of you, you and I and everybody around us, nobody can learn everything about everyone overnight. No one can learn about it, even in one year's worth of celebration. So I think it's just needing to constantly embrace each other's culture and and even you being comfortable and open to let people know maybe that uh, this is baklava. This is not a dish from Zanzibar. This is uh, this is a dish from my kitchen. And but I don't even know. Like, I don't even know. That just seems like so much extra work. So I don't even know. Maybe that's yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's exactly the point is that, you know, you talk about us being good ambassadors, but being an ambassador is a big job. I mean, really, all I want to do is eat baklava. That's what I want to do, right? And I don't want to explain to people why I'm making it, you know, and why I want to eat it. You know, I don't want to explain to them my history. Like, it's a big burden. But as you said, when it becomes a part of our culture for us to be able to have ongoing experiences, those messages get communicated and that's what we need to do. And, and then the burden of ambassadorship doesn't fall on a single one of us. It falls on a larger community, including people who don't come from that community. That's right. Yeah. 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 And I think the more we do that, the more it's going to become comfortable for those of our friends and families who don't feel comfortable expressing it. They're going to see people in the community embracing it and they're going to say, okay, now I feel comfortable 
taking a day off for Eid. Now I feel comfortable sharing my story. Now I feel comfortable being in my own skin. That's why it's, it's important. And this is why I'm so loud, you know, online about certain cultural things. This is why none of my social media accounts are private, right? It's, I really just kind of wanted to be as much of an awareness piece as much as an expression of myself. As possible. Yeah. Sana, we should move to part two soon. And uh, I hope all of you will join us for part two. I want to talk about quote unquote, getting it. And how it is that we become digestible, as one of the former guests of this podcast said. So thank you all for listening. Sana, thank you for joining me. And we'll see you all next week. Sana, any wise words before we go? Oh, just a big resounding thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone listening. Uh, You are exactly the type of allies we need. So thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Don't forget to like and share this podcast. These messages won't go far without you talking about them within your own network. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for sitting with us through this conversation. The Different People podcast was made possible through collaborations with committed and talented individuals. This includes post-production by jonathanlay.net, graphics and web design by Mukhtar Jundi of MJ Designs, and of course, the wonderful guests that make these conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion possible. If you'd like to learn more about myself, my work as an executive coach, professional speaker, and an expert, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, visit leadwithdiversity.com.